Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. 1 Peter 3, 13. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a preview of what's coming in the pulpit in November and December. Uh, I plan to preach a Christmas series in December, and there are a number of pressing issues I want to address this month. Uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I want to preach a sermon on the importance of Thanksgiving and giving thanks in the Christian life. Uh, this next Tuesday is uh, an election day, and so next Sunday, I want to preach on the relationship of the Christian to government uh, during a year where we don't have a presidential election and there's no mask mandates, and hopefully it's smoother sailing to just remind you of the Christian and their responsibility as we interact with government. And of course, today is uh, uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and I want to address the topic of how to respond to persecution. And what all of this means is that we're going to be stepping away from Ephesians in November and December, but we'll jump right back into Ephesians 4 through 6 in January. I'm already working ahead on that and uh, looking forward to it, but that's what's coming up in the next few months here in the pulpit. And today I want to pose the question, how should we respond not just to trouble and suffering in general, but how should we respond when that suffering is persecution. Peter gives us some very simple, straightforward, easy-to-understand instructions on what to do when we face persecution in the passage we're going to look at today. Follow along with me then while I read 1 Peter 3, verses 13 and following. In 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13, Peter says, "'Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good?' But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is wrong. In the late summer of 1939, when it was clear that war was on the horizon, the British government created a uh, promotional, motivational poster that read, Keep Calm and Carry On. Ah, yes, there we go. Uh, keep calm and carry on. And the poster became famous, right? It's evocative for us now of uh, the Victorian belief in British stoicism, right? The stiff upper lip, uh, the idea that Britain's self-discipline and fortitude and ability to stay calm in the middle of difficulty would eventually win the day. And I like the poster because of its practicality. It reminds me what to do in the middle of adversity. Keep your head, stay calm, and do the next right thing. Uh, the poster actually, I think it has very helpful advice. And uh, the poster is very, very practical. Um, and when we think about facing trouble in the Christian life, maybe here's another way to get at the issue of what Peter's going to teach us. It is true that there is comfort to be found in the knowledge that God is good and that God is in control. But there is also a certain amount of comfort to be found when you're facing adversity 
and you have a plan, and you know what to do and why to do it and the logic behind it and why it's the right thing to do, even as you're facing that difficulty. Having a plan, and not just a plan that gets you working so that you're distracted from obsessing over your problem, but a plan that actually has good purposes behind it, that is a comfort in the middle of trouble as well. I was recently listening to uh, the, the testimony of a seasoned pastor uh, who uh, went through his, he was recounting the story of his first crisis in pastoral ministry. Uh, he was a man who felt God calling him into ministry. He turned down better prospects in the business world to take a dying church. Uh, it had an old building. Uh, most of the members, when he came, were in their 70s and 80s. And the first year into his ministry, he hadn't even gotten to the, the one-year mark before he had a crisis of faith as a rookie pastor. He panicked. And, uh, but in his panic, he was reminded of three things. First, that God, not the church, was his provider, and that if the church had to close its doors, God would still provide for him and then move him on to other productive labor. He was reminded that people of all ages need a pastor, especially those dealing with health problems and uh, facing the end of their lives. But there was a third thing that gave him comfort in the middle of the testimony he was sharing. The church constitution said that if the church dissolved, the building and property would be sold and the money given to the denomination. The problem with that, though, is that a previous, uh, a previous generation of Christians had sacrificed uh, and given money in order for that property and that building to be used for gospel purposes. And so the pastor appealed to the elder board. Uh, he, they also appealed to the congregation. They were a congregational church as well as the denomination. And they voted that if they needed to dissolve, what they would actually do is invite a church planting team from the denomination to come in and uh, replant the church or revitalize it, whatever you want to call it, uh, but that they would ask the denomination to do that. And for its part, the denomination didn't want the money. The building was a good building in a prime location, and they were happy to have a church plant start out, uh, not in some school setting up chairs every week but with an, with an actual paid-off building in, in good repair, and so they changed their plan. Uh, now, in God's providence, that church didn't dissolve. New people started coming, the church grew, and that pastor has been at that particular church for over 30 years now. Uh, but the point I want to make in sharing with you this story is to illustrate where did this pastor find hope and the resolve to carry on even in the middle of difficulty? Well, it helped him to remember that God was his provider, not the church. That was important. It helped him to be reminded of the value of ministering to the people God had called him to and loving those people, yes. But there was also value for him in having a good plan in the middle of going about trusting God. Having a good plan in the middle of adversity is a powerful thing. And giving us a good plan for what to do when we face persecution is what Peter does in this passage. You see, Peter's letter here, that's what we call First Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter wrote it to the churches that were in Asia Minor. And if you read all five chapters of the letter, one of the things you'll find is that really the big theme of the letter is facing suffering 
in the Christian life. Uh, But one of the geniuses of Peter's letter is that he doesn't just give people who are suffering some comforts to cling to. The genius of his letter is that he also gives those who suffer marching orders. He gives them, and now us who read it, constructive things to do in the middle of difficulty instead of just obsessing over our troubles. In these verses, Peter is going to give us four things to do when the particular suffering we face is persecution. First, do good. Uh, Number one, do good. Look again at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Uh, That's a rhetorical question, and Peter doesn't supply the answer here because he thinks it'll be obvious to us. Uh, The first question that should come to everybody's mind is, Well, no one. People usually, ordinarily, people don't harm those who they perceive to be doing good in the world. So, verse 13 then becomes like a proverb for us. It teaches the general truth that ordinarily people don't harm those who do good. And Peter uses the word zealous here uh, just to communicate a passion for goodness, right? So, don't be an occasional do-gooder. Be purposeful, intentional, proactive in planning and regularly doing good. As followers of Christ, we should already be doing good anyway. Uh, A good life is harder to harm. The world is slower to hurt people who are obviously abiding by the law, benefiting society, and meeting needs in their community. So, Peter says, start there. Carry on with the good you should already be doing. Don't get bitter about the persecution. Don't get defensive. Don't get angry that your freedoms and your comforts and your possessions are being taken away. Just keep on doing good. When you're persecuted, They're going to do evil to you, but don't return evil for evil. Uh, Instead, do good. That's a good place to start when we face trouble. Second, be willing to suffer. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Uh, Peter uses an if statement here to communicate the strong likelihood that this is probably going to happen. Given enough time, you're probably going to face some hostility for following Christ. Uh, there are, and, and when you face that, realize there's a lot of other people who really were doing good in their communities, doing good in their families, doing good for their nation, for their country, who faced persecution before you. The prophets and the apostles did. Jesus uh, cast out demons. He healed people of diseases. He even brought some people back from the dead, but what happened to him? He faced persecution from the Pharisees and the chief priests. The people that Peter wrote this letter to were doing good uh, in their towns, and yet they were faced with persecution from the predominantly, uh, or I should say it this way, they were facing persecution from the majority pagan culture around them and from the Roman government. And if you're a follower of Christ, The fact is, you need to be willing to suffer for His sake. Earlier in this letter, in uh, chapter 2, verse 21, Peter wrote, "'For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously.'" The death of Christ was an actual, real atonement for sins, but it was also an example for all of us who follow Him. He not only died in your place uh, 
taking the penalty you deserve, He also died to show you how to go about suffering rightly in the middle of injustice. He gave you an example to follow. So again, don't get angry, don't get hostile, don't insult your persecutors, don't threaten them. Commit yourself to God and trust Him for the outcome. That's clear. But what does Peter mean in this verse by saying that if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed? What does he mean by that blessing? Well, the word blessed, uh, it means happy or joyful. I also think if you go back and you look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, there's all those beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think there's an actual way in which what, what what the Greek word is communicating is this, Congratulations to those who are, in poor, who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you think about it that way, what this word blessed is getting at in, in our context here and what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount is this. It's not happy, it's not joyful uh, to be, for instance, poor in spirit. That's not a pleasant thing to be aware of how much of a sinner you are Uh, how wicked you've been, how much you need God's grace. That's not like a pleasant feeling, but you're to be congratulated because it's only people who are poor in spirit and confess their sin that get to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's taking the, the, the situation and it's taking the long view. And that's what Peter is doing here by saying you're blessed if you suffer for righteousness sake. You're to be congratulated not because it's enjoyable to suffer for righteousness sake, but because of the reward that happens in the long run. And, and what are those rewards? Well, uh, we get clues from other Scriptures. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, "'Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in, in heaven is great.'" For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Part of the blessing of being persecuted is that we receive heavenly reward and we live in solidarity with the prophets and apostles who came before us that faced hostility from the world. Uh, Earlier in this letter, back in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Peter taught that it finds favor with God when we suffer for what's doing right. Uh, Back in chapter 1 of this letter, Peter said that all sufferings, not just persecution, but all of our sufferings, uh, have this way of strengthening and beautifying our faith, and what all our sufferings add up to, if we'll enter into them by faith and trust the Lord, they add up to a salvation where when Christ returns, we will be affirmed and uh, validated, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Vindicated. We'll be vindicated by Him for the choices we made, but we will also receive praise and glory and honor from Him when He returns. It's unpleasant in the short run to face hostility or rejection for following Christ, but in the long run, it's more rewarding to suffer for righteousness' sake than not to. And then Peter quotes Isaiah next, Uh, You can see it in all capital letters in your translation. Uh, That's a clue that he's quoting an Old Testament prophet here, and he quotes where Isaiah says, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Now, fear, feeling intimidated, uh, losing your peace, being agitated inside, that all makes perfect sense to me uh, when we face 
persecution. I think that's very natural. It's very understandable that Christians will experience that when persecution comes. But the message Peter is saying here is, don't be shaken. Don't be disturbed. Or here's another way we could paraphrase what Peter is saying. Stay calm. Keep calm. In that situation, make your theology work for you. You've read about all the hostility the prophets and the apostles faced. Uh, You know, Jesus Himself warned you before you started following Him that all who follow Him will face difficulty. Um, uh, But we also know that He's promised He'll be with us through the difficulty and give us the grace to please Him in the middle of it. And in the long run, it's going to result in reward and praise and glory and honor at the return of our Lord. And so, this is really a call to courage in the face of intimidation. The fact is, you are blessed if you suffer for righteousness' sake. So, keep calm and carry on by doing good and by being willing to suffer for Christ. There's a third action that helps us keep our head when persecution comes, and that is to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Look again at the middle of verse 14. Peter says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, there's two thoughts there. That thought of not being intimidated, uh, not being intimidated on the one hand, and sanctifying Christ as Lord, they actually go together and they, they connect with each other because of what Peter is doing with his quote from Isaiah. Peter uh, is quoting from Isaiah chapter 8 here, and Isaiah 8 has a particular context. Uh, The context there is that Isaiah is ministering to the southern kingdom of Judah, and Judah is being threatened by uh, the Israelite kingdom in the north, and then also they're in league with the Arameans further north in Damascus in what we would call Syria nowadays. Uh, There's a league, and they are plotting evil against Judah. And so, Judah is outnumbered. They're outgunned. But even though they're outnumbered and outgunned, God has promised to deliver them. And so, in that context, God says to Isaiah the prophet in chapter 8, verses 12 through 13 of Isaiah, you are not to say, it's a conspiracy in regard to all that this people calls a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and He shall be your fear, and He shall be your dread." In other words, God communicates to Isaiah, don't be intimidated by this Israelite-Aramean coalition. Instead, fear Yahweh, fear Him who is holy. And that's the thought that Peter is taking from Isaiah and importing into our passage here. And the application would be this, don't get so focused on the power of your persecutors that you start fearing them. Instead, set apart Christ as Lord and fear Him, fear Christ. And notice the word, the words, from the heart. Uh, You'll remember that Jesus said to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So, maybe we could say it this way, don't just sanctify Christ as Lord, sanctify Him as Lord in your heart, from the heart. Don't just offer Him external service on like a Sunday morning and then disregard all of His teaching to live however you want, Monday through Saturday, right? Uh, Don't be like the older brother in the parable of the lost sons who stayed on the farm but didn't share his father's heart and didn't rejoice when his younger brother came home. 
Uh, don't do that. Instead, follow Christ from the heart. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, then, Christ has to become your focus and your meditation and not your trouble. So, maybe we could say it this way. From the perspective of love, when persecution comes, you have to love Christ more than you love the passing pleasures and opportunities and comforts of this world that your persecutors are taking away from you. And from the perspective of fear, you have to fear Christ more than you fear uh, the, the displeasure or the rejection of those who are persecuting you. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctifying Him as Lord in your heart, it gives you a focal point. It gives you, a, it gives you an organizing principle uh, which clarifies the situation when you're going to experience a lot of emotion and a lot of confusion. So be good, uh, do good, be willing to suffer, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, and then finally, be ready to give a defense of the faith. In verse 15, Peter goes on to say, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Uh, that word defense has behind it the Greek word apologia. It's the word from which we get apologetics. And uh, originally in the Greek courtroom, it was for a defense attorney who was giving a satisfactory, rational explanation of his client's actions. So as we follow Christ as Lord, one of the things we need to learn to do is to apply His teaching to the thought forms of the culture that we live in so that we can make a rational defense and even just give a, a rational explanation for our faith. Um, that's very important as we follow Christ. Now, I agree with the value of the study of apologetics and particularly the fact that apologetics stresses defending all of the Christian faith, uh, all, all of what's in Scripture. And yet here this morning in the paragraph we're in, I want you to focus on exactly what Peter wants us to be able to defend. He focuses on the defense of our hope. Uh, we should have a hope in Christ that stands out in the middle of a world full of hopelessness. And Peter presents a picture here in verse 15 that I like to think of it, it's almost like a, a, I'd call it reverse evangelism. It's not so much that we go out and proactively find people and we want to share uh, the love of Christ and the message of the gospel with them. In verse 15, what happens is people see our hope and they're asking us about it, right? Uh, and so, our hope uh, is supposed to be a very powerful part of our message. And our main hope, there's a lot of things in the Christian life that we hope in, uh, but one of the main things we hope in that I think we need to give a, a defense for is our hope is in the coming resurrection. When Christ rose from the dead, He conquered sin and death, and one day we'll be resurrected with Him. According to Peter, the mercy of God has, quote, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's from 1 Peter 1. Uh, if you look at Peter's defense that he gives for the faith in Acts chapter 2, one of the things you'll notice is that one of the things he defends primarily 
one of the things he gives particular focus to defending uh, in that setting is defending not only the resurrection of Christ, but what the resurrection of Christ accomplishes for everybody who follows Him. So, if people say to you in the middle of the difficulty, why are you still a Christian? Like, what's the point? why, Why are you still a Christian? Your answer can't be, well, because I want my best life now right? Your defense can't be, well, I met some nice people in the church, and it's a social group to belong to that I kind of like. Like those, those are terrible answers, and they don't get to the heart of the issue. Our defense is that we know this life isn't all there is. It's appointed unto mankind once to die, and after that, the judgment. There is a day coming when Jesus will raise all people from the dead, some to a resurrection of eternal judgment, others to a resurrection of eternal life. And the way to that eternal life is through confessing our rebellion against God and the evil we've done. It's through placing our faith in Christ and His sacrifice for us on the cross. And it's through turning from living life our own way to follow Jesus. Uh, We do what we do because we've been reconciled to God, and we look forward to the resurrection from the dead and uh, joy in God's presence and pleasures at His right hand forevermore. Now, as we think about defending our hope and defending the faith, there are four factors that will make our defense more effective. We've already seen the first one. It's having a hope that's obvious to other people, so obvious they ask us about our hope. But there's three other things that enhance our defense. After bringing up this defense of our hope, Peter adds, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So first, we're supposed to have a a hope and joy in the middle of trouble that's obvious to others. We've already talked about that. But second, as we give our defense, we're to be gentle. Proverbs 15.1 says it this way, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh reply stirs up anger. Gentleness adds persuasion. And we're aware that in many cases, when we defend our hope, when we share why we have our hope in Christ, uh, many of the people who persecute us will still reject Christ. But when that happens, we want the offense that's taken on their part to be the offense of our message and the offense of what Jesus Christ taught, not, uh, uh, not an offense because of the way that we interacted with them, not because we were somehow offensive in our behavior or with our words. When we're giving a defense of our faith, that is no time to be sarcastic or belittling of our opponents or the thought forms and philosophies that we're interacting with as we give a defense. We want to provide a rational defense for our faith in a winsome way, and part of being winsome there here is being gentle. Third, our manner is also to be reverential. The Greek word that this translates is actually fear. It's in a fearful way. So, we are supposed to give honor and respect to all people and all authorities that we would make a defense to, but there's only one one person we're supposed to fear, and that's God Himself. And so, even as we give our defense in a respectful way, we're mindful of the gaze of God. We're mindful that Christ is our Lord. He sees what we're doing, and we want to honor Him in the way we go about giving our defense. That's really what reverential means here. And then fourth, 
it's also important to keep a good conscience. And that really starts before you get to the defense, right? That, that starts with living a consistent Christian life leading up to the day when you have to give a defense. And keeping a good conscience, what it does is it adorns the gospel, it is a protection for you, and it brings comfort. It adorns the gospel because you've been living in a manner consistent with the gospel in a way that enhances your witness. It's a defense for you because when the persecution comes, and you can see this in what the early Christians faced with the Romans, you can see it uh, all throughout church history. You can look at it in other cultures, for instance, the way that Christianity is persecuted by majority Muslim cultures. Um, The reason that having a good conscience is a defense for you is this, because people who persecute Christians typically will try to shame you. They'll redefine terms. They'll manipulate language. They'll do everything possible to argue that you're the immoral person. You're the bad person because you believe that Jesus is the only way and all those other ways are wrong. You're the immoral person because you believe in that terrible book, the Bible. Uh, You're the person who is the enemy of human flourishing and human freedom because you believe in the sexual ethic of the Bible. They're going to try to shame you. They're going to lay a guilt trip on you. But if your conscience is clean, their strategy won't succeed. A good conscience is a defense for you. And it's also a comfort for you because you know that uh, your manner of living is a good advertisement for the gospel. We should always be ready to provide a rational explanation for our faith in a winsome way. And four things that enhance our defense are having hope that's evident to everybody, giving our defense in a gentle way, uh, being reverent about it as we do so because we know we're doing so before the face of God, and having a clean conscience because our walk, though it hasn't been perfect, uh, our walk matches, for the most part, our talk. Persecution can be frightening, it can be intimidating, but we can keep calm and carry on by doing good, by being willing to suffer for Christ, by sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts, and by being ready to give a defense of our faith. And then Peter concludes in verse 17 with these words, "'For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing wrong.'" Uh, Peter ends by re-emphasizing a point he had already made back in verse 14, that you're actually blessed if you suffer for righteousness' sake, but he adds a new and powerful thought that I want to draw out by just asking two questions of this verse. First of all, does God will the suffering of His children? And second, if so, why? Like, why would He do that? First of all, does God will the suffering of His children? The biblical answer is yes, sometimes. Not yes, all the time. The Christian life is not unremitting difficulty and unpleasantness from beginning to end. He gives us lots of good gifts. He gives us lots of things to help us on our journey that are, that are good and that give us good comfort and hope and encouragement along the way. It's not all suffering. We shouldn't, we shouldn't act like martyrs about what the Christian faith has called us to. But clearly, in the New Testament, sometimes God does will for His children to go through difficulty and suffering for a season. Uh, so, yes, God does uh, 
want, in some cases, His children to suffer. Um, So, what that means is then, our suffering is governed by God. The question it raises, though, is, but why would God allow His children to suffer? At least on the face of it, especially for an American audience, that just looks bad. Like, why why would you will that your children suffer? Um, Well, God allows suffering for two reasons, our own long-term good and also for His glory. Let me explain both of those. God allows us to suffer for our own long-term good because suffering strengthens and beautifies and perfects our faith. It makes us stronger. But He also allows us to suffer uh, because it's for His own glory in this sense. There are ways that God receives glory through the steadfast suffering of His people hoping in Him that can be shown in no other way than them suffering. Let me explain, okay? When Christians lose houses and careers and freedoms and even their lives at the hands of those who persecute them, it sends a powerful message that Christ is better than houses and careers and freedoms and lives. The martyrs who've gone before us who willingly gave their lives for Christ, they show the world that the loving kindness of our God is better than life itself. They they, they have an apologetic argument that's impossible to defeat. The world can't ignore that. So, sometimes the willingness of God's people to suffer uh, for His name's sake, it is the best way for the gospel message to go forth and to show people the surpassing value and worth of and majesty of Christ. So, let's be honest about it here. Uh, now in where we're at right now, 2023 in America. Uh, In America, Christianity isn't on the ascendancy in our culture. Uh, There seems to be more hostility to Christianity in the culture in general than there was a couple generations ago. And though American Christians have received a reprieve, at least from imprisonments and martyrdoms uh, for hundreds of years now, it's not hard to imagine that the same kinds of sufferings our brothers and sisters face in other countries and the same kinds of sufferings that our brothers and sisters have faced in church history, it's not hard to imagine that something like that could come to us. And when greater persecution comes to us, it'll be frightening, right? It'll be intimidating. It's not going to be pleasant, but we can still shine the light of Jesus in the middle of that situation by keeping calm and carrying on by doing good and being willing to suffer, by sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts and being ready to give a defense of our faith with gentleness and reverence and with a good conscience. If we live our lives like that in the face of hostility, we'll be able to stay calm even when the worst comes, no matter what it is, and we'll be able to send the testimony to our enemies that God wants us to send so that they can see our transformed lives and be interested in our hope. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please give us the grace to passionately do good, be willing to suffer, and give a winsome and wise defense of our faith no matter what comes. Regardless of what troubles we'll face, we want to keep calm and carry on by making progress in our heavenly journey, but we admit we need Your help. And so we pray that You would give us the grace to be willing to suffer for Christ's sake and to not shrink back at the threat of persecution. We ask for your help in this, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.